0: I do see these eco-protesters gluing themselves to Botticellis. And then I listened to the Alcoa conference call, which we're going to listen to. And, you know, the first seven minutes, it's a little technical in nature. I actually edited out the most technical parts of it, just about the company. But after that, I mean, once they got through all the numbers... And then they just started talking about what's going on. It's everything I was hoping for. Everything. And I thought to myself, I actually said to my girlfriend, as I reside out here in Crete, Greece, for one more precious day, I was saying, I just wish these environmentalists, like the hardcore ones that are gluing themselves to Botticelli's, the birth of Venus or the, or the right of spring, whichever it was masterpieces with crazy glue, Italian guards being hailed as heroes as they rip off their skin, glue left on these pages. I would just love for these people who are gluing themselves to paintings and other precious things, I would love for them to listen to Elkoa's conference call. Because what you're going to hear here in the second half is everything that is being done for the environment. And you're also going to hear what's going on in China, what's going on with smelters. As we rightly predicted, Spain is a disaster. I mean, I guess that's not some Einsteinian prediction here, that natural gas prices in Spain will affect Alcoa's smelter there. So no big surprise there. But a very interesting dynamic here at work where the Fed has hit commodity prices by raising interest rates. Nevertheless. We retain a deficit in these metals, and that's what the Alcoa CEO was saying. Demand continues to grow, aluminum to remain in deficit, and smelters are struggling for profitability. And so this is the problem with this whole central bank intervention in these markets is it's just distorting everything because they're going, oh, Prices are too high, so we need to hit prices, especially on commodities and energy, when right now what we need is actually high prices in order to make more metals and energy. Isn't that what we need, is high prices and then people will make more? And instead, they get involved and they smash the prices. And now what are we going to do? We still don't have enough metals and energy. They say, oh, well, demand... Is going to fall back. That's not what the CEO of Alcoa is saying. You know what he's saying? Demand continues to grow. It's like central banks, they were able to get away with it for a long time, but you're just starting to feel. You look at the West, I'm just starting to feel, I guess I should speak for myself here, that we're starting to run out of cards to play here. You know, it's the classic the Fed is cornered and intervening and lowering commodity prices, I'm not sure that helps us. Yeah, okay, maybe it helps us with prices overall, and they come down short-term, but is that really a long-term solution? If, as the Alcoa CEO says, demand continues to grow. So anyways, a very interesting thing to look forward to. We have just booked Eric Buckland, so we are going to get the latest on mining employment. Hopefully, that will be for next week's program, unless we have any unforeseen delays. And other than that, I mean, let's just take the temperature here of the markets. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, this brings up another point I've been thinking about the last few days, which is retail was being criticized for buying the dip on this drop in stock prices. And retail was out there buying the dip, and all the experts were saying – Oh, here's dumb retail buying the dip and, you know, it's going to blow up in their face. It's all going down and they were almost to a, you know, except for the real contrarians out there. Everybody was saying this thing's going down. And what we've had is a pretty remarkable rally. I mean, let's look at the S&P 500 here. I mean, 3961 on the S&P 500. We're just a hair away from 4000. The sentiment has shifted now. I saw an interview with someone a few months ago saying, you know, everybody made fun of retail with GameStop and everything, but back then they actually did fairly well. As that person was making the point, retail was right. And I just wonder to myself here, will retail be right again? You know, it's back to this idea, talk is cheap. And here we have endless commentary of people telling us how this thing's going down. And you know what? Right now it's not going down. I mean, that could change tomorrow. But right now, all the doomsdayers out there, mainstream and otherwise, who are all saying this has to go down with such certainty of how wrong people are to have bought in this dip. You know, <laughs> it just like the markets will humble you. All of us, you know, I was calling gold obvious at like 1850 or something like that. And here it resides at 1731. So nobody is immune to this. And I don't say it with any sort of bravado. By the way, I still think gold is obvious. Not financial advice, but in my universe, you just don't even think about it. You buy some gold, good, it's cheaper. If you have any concern that the US dollar or that the BRICS who are putting together a commodity currency, if any of that has any... Like, we do seem, with all these incredible debts and this energy issue, like I was saying at the top of this show, it does feel like the West is starting to run out of cards. Can it just go on a massive... Money printing spree again? I don't think so. I, I think the most it can do is just reduce the tightening. You know, it, it can just stop tightening, and that in itself will probably lift the markets, and that'll give all the pension funds out there what they need. So the S and P five hundred at thirty nine sixty one, oil at ninety five dollars and fifty eight cents. Now, quite the spread here between W T I, which is ninety five fifty eight, and Brent crude which I believe is a more of an international oil, which is at $104.23. So you have a $9 spread there between WTI and Brent crude, which must mean something somewhere. And again, that international crude, $9 more. So that's interesting. And again, if we want more oil development, we kind of need that price to be higher rather than lower. Taking a look at bonds, U.S. tenure at 2.807%. So bonds continue to chill and not pose too much of a problem. You know, if I was to read this, I'm definitely not a bond expert, as we all know. But it seems to me that the inflation narrative, people are basically saying, "Okay, the Fed's done a pretty good job at reducing inflation with this drawdown in commodity prices, including agricultural to metals. Let's just look at copper quickly. And copper is at $3.37. Silver, $18.63. So commodities continue to stay lower, which if we need more copper, and we have a story coming up on this, we actually need higher copper prices. That is what the story is about. So with that, a very exciting show from Crete, Greece, before we fly back to Berlin tomorrow, what a glorious two weeks it's been. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website. Higher copper prices needed to incentivize new production says exec. This by Henry Lazenby. The current and consensus forecast copper price levels are insufficient to incentivize the new supply that will be needed as the world moves to a fully electrified economy, a senior stifle GMB analyst tells the Northern Miner. According to Egizio Bianchini, vice chairman and Stiefel's head of metals and mining investment banking, the copper industry's average price and company valuation multiples both need to increase significantly. For the industry to even, quote, attempt to deliver an aggressive supply response to expected demand, end quote, he said in an interview. He continues, quote, the global copper industry is undersized and undercapitalized to deliver a strong supply response to what is expected to be a firm demand profile. According to the Stifle executive, notwithstanding the high margins the sector is currently enjoying, the copper price remains well below incentive pricing when considering the risk factors associated with developing, financing and building a mine in the current environment. Among the factors increasingly stifling mine development are unpredictable and additional environmental regulations, ESG related considerations, a deteriorating geopolitical environment, seemingly high incentives for government to increase their portion of the financial pie, also known as resource nationalism. Dramatically increasing inflation for goods and services and the expanding timeframes for executing mine development and construction. You know, this ESG business, like this is something we've pushed on this show and that we are in favor of. However, if this ESG business gets pushed too far, there is going to be a huge political backlash. and I think we're going to see it in Europe first, where energy prices are through the roof because of a lack of investment in oil and energy and nuclear energy and all these ESG concerns are piling on to each other and you know it's back to that Potticelli, little stories like that, actually not so little stories like that, are creating what I see as an enormous backlash coming. We see it, you know, again, in the mining sector here, we have a front row seat on all of this business because we're sort of where the rubber meets the road, where theoretical mandates meet taking metal out of the ground and processing it into something that is usable by society. So despite those headwinds, the copper price appears robust compared to trailing prices at face value, forward-looking copper pricing expectations. Appears strong enough to entice significant new production to come on stream. However, it's not that simple, explains Bianchini. While the established global copper producers are generating margins that historically would have resulted in the addition of substantial new supply, Bianchini says there's a 12 million ton per year copper supply gap emerging from 2025 onwards. Quote, nothing is coming down the supply pipeline, even nearly, to cover the missing metal. So... Again, this echoes what Goldman Sachs has been saying, that look for 2024, 2025 for this deficit to really bite. The top seven public copper producers combined failed to reach a market capitalization of a single top technology company by a long shot, he said. What does it all boil down to? The prospect of much higher copper prices down the line. So you can read the whole story on northernminer.com, but... Again, these low prices are a short-term fix, which could make things even worse in the long term. Moving on, Ford goes directly to miners for lithium nickel supply to support EV ambitions. This is by Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. Ford Motor Company announced plans to accelerate its EV production that are underpinned by several high-profile agreements with lithium and nickel miners to supply raw materials for the vehicle's batteries. The U.S.-based automaker said in a news release that it has secured 100% of the battery supplies it needs to produce 600,000 EVs per year by the end of 2023, and with the help of Chinese battery company Contemporary Amperex Technology, CATL, it could make 2 million EVs by 2026. It plans to invest more than $50 billion in EVs through 2026, targeting total company-adjusted EBIT margins of 10% and 8% margins for EVs by 2026. And we have a quote from Ford president and CEO, Jim Farley, quote, Ford's new electric vehicle lineup has generated huge enthusiasm and demand. And now we are putting the industrial system in place to scale quickly. Our Model E team has moved with speed, focus, and creativity to secure the battery capacity and raw materials we need to deliver breakthrough EVs for millions of customers. Ford said it will source battery cell raw materials through a set of agreements, mostly non-binding memorandums of understanding on projects that are not yet in production, with nine mining companies. The announcements follow on agreements EV leader Tesla has also made with nickel, lithium, and graphite miners. Well, all this tells me is supply is not what it used to be. Because if supply is a plenty, people don't need to go to the miners to secure their supply. Agreements span the globe. Rio Tinto signed a non binding MOU with Ford to develop more sustainable and secure supply chains for battery and low carbon materials for its vehicles. Materials covered in the deal include lithium, low carbon aluminum, and copper, Rio Tinto said in a statement. The lithium would be supplied in an offtake agreement from Rio Tinto's Rincon project in Argentina currently under development, though it is unclear how much of the metal would be provided to Ford. Among the other lithium supply deals Ford has secured is a binding offtake agreement with Australian miner Ioneer for 7,000 tons of lithium carbonate annually over a five-year period starting in 2025. And another company is Liontown Resources that has signed an offtake agreement with Ford. And another is Compass Minerals, who signed a non-binding MOU with Ford for lithium supplies. And then they're securing supply for nickel. Ford said it signed non-binding MOUs with Valet, quote, to explore potential opportunities across the EV value chain. A third MOU with BHP would provide nickel from the company's Nickel West project in Western Australia starting as early as 2025 and could include more commodities later on. And BHP's head of corporate communications, Gabriel Notley, told the northern miner, quote, mining and refining account for the majority of emissions in the nickel battery value chain. Collaborating with Ford will provide opportunities to lower end product related emissions, discover mutually beneficial ways to accelerate value chain decarbonization, and ensure stronger ESG credentials for raw materials. So again, all the big players are starting to reduce their emissions, as you're going to hear in this Alcoa conference call. And more about supply... We have a story here, BHP to speed up $5.7 billion Jansen Potash Mine. It's by Cecilia Jemazmi. BHP is seeking to accelerate construction at its $5.7 billion Jansen Potash Mine in Saskatchewan as high gas prices and sanctions on key exporters continue to disrupt global supplies of fertilizers. The world's largest miner had originally planned to kick off production at Janssen in 2027. Market conditions, however, have prompted it to attempt bringing forward first production in 2026. So they're moving it up a year. Quote, BHP is trying to accelerate first tons at Jansen, but it still seems best case is first tons come late 2026 with a two-year ramp, BMO fertilizers and chemicals analyst Joel Jackson wrote in May. Jackson continued, quote, we believe BHP needs to hire about 600 miners for Janssen with the labor per ton deemed lower than nutrient and mosaics incumbent mines. As BHP expected to employ less equipment per ton and other innovation. So we're going to talk to Eric Buckland next week. If all goes according to plan on what is going on with mining employment, because it's probably another very interesting window on what's going on out there. And on the security front, Mozambique has been, you know, looking pretty bad for a long time now. Gemfields on alert as insurgent attacks creep closer to Mozambique ruby mine. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi Africa-focused Gemfields warned on Wednesday that insurgent attacks are edging closer to its ruby mine in Mozambique's northern Cabo Delgado province, but said operations had not been halted. An Islamic State-linked insurgency broke out in October 2017 in Cabo Delgado, a coastal province rich in natural gas reserves and host to an estimated $60 billion worth of international investment in gas projects. The violence has so far left at least 3,100 people dead, according to the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which tracks political violence around much of the world. Conflict there also has displaced nearly 856,000 people, nearly half of them children, according to UNICEF. Jemfield said the latest attack hit the Mauja village, which is about 30 kilometers by road from its Montupuez ruby mine. A previous incident last month occurred about 65 kilometers east-northeast from its operation, in which the company holds a 75% interest. And we have a quote from CEO Sean Gilbertson. A large number of people are reportedly relocating to Nanhupo and Naman Humbir, where the mining operations are located. Given recent developments in the associated security review, operations continue with increased vigilance. Violence has affected other miners in the region. In June, Australia's Triton Minerals reported an attack on its Anquabe graphite project site. Sierra Resources briefly suspended logistics and staff movement at its flagship Balama graphite operation due to assaults close to its primary transport route. So pretty intense activity in Mozambique. Moving to Canada, Raglan Mine workers reject new offer from Glencore as Standstill enter its ninth week, so another strike. It's by Naimul Karim, who just left the Northern Miner for the Financial Post, so we wish him well. Workers at Glencore's Raglan Nickel Mine in Nunavik rejected the company's latest offer this week as a labor dispute that has halted most of the mine's operations enters its third month. Glencore said in a release that its latest proposal offered most of the unionized employees a compensation of about $130,000 to $190,000 annually, twice the average pay of workers in Quebec, and so this is in Nunavik. But union workers who have been fighting against the increased use of subcontracting and pushing for better working conditions say that they were asked to accept less than what was previously proposed. Negotiations have now returned to square one, the union said. And we have a quote from the union representative Harold Arsenault, quote, let the message from our members ring loud and clear all the way to head office. We're not afraid. We will not be bullied. We will remain standing until a negotiated agreement is reached. So workers on strike at the Raglan nickel mine in Nunavik. And just a couple of headlines here. Chile rejects second Anglo-American project in two months. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi, Anglo-American has suffered a new setback in Chile after the environmental commission of Valparaiso Cueva rejected the company's $40 million operational continuity project for its El Soldado copper mine, 125 kilometers north of capital, Santiago. Despite having the backing of the country's Environmental Evaluation Authority, which recommended the project's approval... The local regulators scratched El Soldado Phase 5 project with 10 voting against and only two in favor. So, looks like the national politicians were in favor and the local were against. You know, you just see nothing but supply being strangled here across the board. Another headline, also by Cecilia Gemazmi, Drought operational issues bring down Antofagasta guidance. Chilean miner Antofagasta has lowered its full-year output target to 640,000. To 660,000 tons after production was hindered from water shortages in an underground pipeline that transports concentrate from Los Palambres. The miners said copper output in the second quarter of the year fell 6.5% quarter-on-quarter. For the half-year, it was almost 26% lower year-on-year. And finally, Pinsana starts building UK's first rare earths refinery, Also by Cecilia Gemazmi, Rare Earths producer Pensana has broken ground at its salt-end rare earth processing hub in northern England, set to be the country's first major facility of its kind in more than a decade. The project is part of the launch of the country's first critical minerals strategy, unveiled today to weaken China's dominance on the group of 17 minerals used in electric vehicles, wind turbines, and military equipment. And we have a quote from Kwasi Kwarteng, UK Secretary of State for Business, who said, critical minerals will become even more important as we seek to bolster our energy security and domestic industrial resilience in light of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, and as we move away from volatile, expensive fossil fuels, this strategy will bolster our resilience to the market shocks and geopolitical events while supplying key industries such as automotive and defense. You can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. <laughs> Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on July 26th, gold is trading at $1,727.07 per ounce. That is $12 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $18.60 per ounce. That is $0.24 cents lower than last week. And platinum is trading $10 higher at $877.37 per ounce. And palladium is also higher at $1,988.54 per ounce. There's $110 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny higher at $3.28 per pound. Aluminum is $0.04 higher at $1.10 per pound. Lead is $0.05 higher at $0.91 per pound. And nickel is $0.40 higher at $9.62 per pound. Tin is lower at $11.10. That is 51 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is $5 lower at $22.57 per pound. And zinc is a penny higher at $1.36 per pound. So what do we see is basically a small bump after a big fall. Metals continue to fall over the last eight weeks, but here they seem to be on a slight pause with gold up a hair from last week, but Really, all you're seeing is a slight bounce off of basically recent lows. So I'm not sure we can say much more than that. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, Alcoa's Q2 earnings call with CEO and President Roy Harvey and Chief Financial Officer William F. Opplinger. And they discuss the rising energy costs, how margins are down, and how the higher U.S. dollar has helped them, as well as their ongoing efforts in sustainability. So it's a real feast, actually. You hear their comments on China. Again, the first seven and a half minutes are slightly more technical, kind of on the company operations. But then the remaining 14, 15 minutes are all on the big picture, and it's super interesting. If you're wondering what EBITDA is, there may be some of you who are wondering, because they mentioned EBITDA Little bit in the first part. It's short for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It is one of the most widely used measures of a company's financial health and ability to generate cash. It's just cash coming in the company before all your costs and taxes and everything else. And with that, again, this is an edited earnings call. If you want the full thing, go to Alcoa's website. And with that, I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side.
1: Welcome to everyone joining today's call. Once again, we had a strong quarter with results that included a sequential increase in revenue, solid net income, strong cash flows, and increased capital returns to our stockholders. We will dive deeper into our results soon, but here are a few of the most important highlights. Net income was $549 million. Our adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, was $913 million, which brings us to nearly $2 billion through the first half of this year. Our free cash flow, less non-controlling interest, was $383 million. Strong cash flow in the quarter supported capital returns to our stockholders. Year-to-date, we have provided $387 million in capital returns. This includes $275 million in stock buybacks during the second quarter and $19 million in cash dividends, which the company paid on June 3rd at the rate of $0.10 per share. Also, today we announced an additional authorization of $500 million for future stock repurchases, supplementing the $150 million that remains from the prior authorization. Importantly, in these volatile markets, we continue to have a very strong balance sheet and we are well positioned for all parts of the commodity cycle. Our proportional adjusted net debt has reached much lower levels. It stood at $1.2 billion at quarter's end, down from $3.4 billion for full year 2020. And we ended the quarter with a cash balance of $1.6 billion. We also recently amended and restated our revolving credit facility to provide more flexibility, which Bill will discuss in more detail during today's presentation. Before we do that, however, I want to reinforce an important foundational item. Our Alcoa values may continue to guide our company. We act with integrity, operate with excellence, care for people, and lead with courage. These values are our consistent guideposts, and we lean into them even more during times of volatility and uncertainty. Importantly, our commitment to safety is embedded in these values. This year, we've not had any fatal or life-altering serious injuries or what we classify as FSIAs. Working safely remains our overarching goal every day, Our success requires continued vigilance in protecting the health and safety of our global workforce, including contractors and anyone who may visit our locations. With our values as a foundation, we continue to execute on our company's strategic priorities. We are restarting some aluminum smelting capacity. The Alumar restart in Brazil is progressing, and we expect some additional modest capacity at the Portland aluminum smelter in East Australia to come online beginning in September. Meanwhile, We have made production adjustments at two other locations. The high cost of natural gas in Spain prompted us to reduce the daily production rate at the San Ciprián refinery to help mitigate some of those costs. And here in the United States, we made the decision this month to curtail one of three operating pot lines at Warwick operations in the state of Indiana due to operational challenges. We also continue to move forward with our investment program, which includes some return-seeking projects that we announced recently. At our Mugin smelter in Norway, we are working to boost the electrical infrastructure to increase its capacity by another 14,000 metric tons per year. In Canada, our DeChambeau smelter broke ground this month on a project that will allow it to cast standard ingots for value-add products, providing more flexibility for customers. We have demand for this specific size, including for foundry alloys that are used in various automotive applications. And speaking of value-add products, we continue to have strong year-over-year demand for Ecolum, our low-carbon aluminum in our Sustena family of products, which is gaining more traction with customers. In our aluminum segment, we also continue to progress on energy contracts that support the commitment we made to our workforce to restart the San Ciprian smelter beginning in January 2024. I'll turn it over to Bill now to walk through the financials.
2: Thanks, Roy. The second quarter of 2022 was our highest ever quarterly revenue at $3.64 billion. This quarter gap net income attributable to Alcoa of $549 million was higher than our adjusted net income of $496 million, mainly due to non-cash adjustments. These special items included mark-to-market gains on energy contracts, primarily at our Portland smelter of $106 million as well as a reversal of a valuation allowance of $83 million related to VAT credits in Brazil. Second quarter 2022 adjusted EBITDA was $913 million, up $295 million from the second quarter of 2021, and only $159 million short of last quarter's record adjusted EBITDA. With another quarter's excellent financial results, our first half adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, has totaled $1.99 billion. Let's look at the key drivers of second quarter EBITDA. The largest sequential benefit in the second quarter came from improved shipment volumes. Other favorable factors included benefits from a stronger U.S. dollar and a higher alumina price index. Lower metal prices, which included approximately $40 million to set inventories to net realizable value combined with higher costs, as well as lower aluminum and alumina premiums, more than offset those benefits. In the segments, oxide EBITDA was $5 million, a result of lower royalties income, intercompany pricing, and the MRN divestiture, as well as higher maintenance and production costs. Illumina segment EBITDA increased $81 million sequentially on higher index pricing, the reversal of the VAT valuation allowance in Brazil, favorable foreign currency, and higher shipments. With partial offsets from increased energy costs, higher raw material costs and production costs, and an ARO charge for improvements to bauxite residue areas at POSOs. In the aluminum segment, we saw benefits of higher shipment volumes, but earnings declined on lower LME prices, higher costs, and lower buy resale margins. In alumina, we expect approximately $30 million in higher energy and raw materials costs with one-third being related to San Cipri and refinery energy costs. We expect higher shipments and improved customer mix to offset remaining cost pressures. In the aluminum segment, we expect alumina costs to be favorable by $30 million. We also expect an approximately $30 million impact from higher energy and raw material costs not fully offset by production cost savings. Additionally, the work potline curtailment is expected to result in an unfavorable impact of $20 million. Thanks, Bill.
1: Now, moving from our strong second quarter financial results, let's discuss what we're currently seeing in our markets and the long-term trends that remain positive for the aluminum industry. Overall, the market is expected to remain in a deficit this year. Pricing and global supply-demand forecasts have been dynamic, and this is happening for a variety of reasons. First, on the supply side, China has ramped up some smelters that were idled in 2021 due to intentional curtailments or project delays. At the same time, European smelters, and more recently one smelter in North America, have cut capacity due to higher energy prices. On the demand side, while there is some global uncertainty in the near term, demand continues to grow. And finally, we continue to see inventories decrease globally, as supply has failed to keep pace with continued demand. Given the price and cost pressures over the past quarter, we also see significant amounts of global alumina and aluminum capacities that are likely to be cash negative based on an analysis through June, which means global operating capacities will remain under pressure. Based on June's average prices, we estimate that between 10 to 20% of worldwide smelting capacity was underwater last month. At some points in the first week of July, the SHFE spot price are likely to have pushed around half of Chinese smelting capacity underwater. In these conditions, however, suppliers like Alcoa that produce in markets with structural deficits, like North America and Europe, remain in an advantage to position as many consumers preferred domestic suppliers with integrated supply chains. Those consumers have also looked to move away from relying on riskier imported volumes. For Alcoa, much of our value-add aluminum products are sold on annual contracts, and we expect similar volumes and higher average premiums for our value-added aluminum products in 2022 compared with 2021. Now, moving to the longer term, the structural factors in the aluminum market remain positive. The world needs aluminum. And it will continue to be a critical material for a sustainable society. Aluminum has been essential for modern life, and it will play an even larger role in the low carbon future. As we know, it is lightweight, strong, and most importantly, infinitely recyclable. It is being used to replace plastics and heavier metals in a wide range of applications, and it is vital for the ongoing transition to build the electric vehicles and renewable energy infrastructure the world will need to transition to a low carbon future. Global aluminum demand is expected to grow significantly in the years to come. The International Aluminum Institute forecasts global demand for aluminum will increase up to 80% by 2050 from the baseline of 2018, and that the demand will be met by both recycled and primary metal. The IAI estimates that up to 90 million metric tons of primary aluminum will be required per year in 2050. As China approaches its 45 million ton per year capacity cap, we expect new projects outside of China will be needed to meet demand while managing the rising costs of carbon emissions. Due to these carbon costs, we expect the bulk of global smelting projects in the future to seek renewable power. Those factors should also advantage today's low carbon emitting producers, like Alcoa, as demand continues to grow for low carbon aluminum particularly in markets like Europe and North America. These longer-term factors continue to make us optimistic on the aluminum market and reinforce our need to continue strengthening our business as we prepare for a bright future. As I mentioned at the top of our call, we continue to work on optimizing our operating portfolio for today and tomorrow. First, we remain focused on driving returns restarting capacity when it makes financial sense such as at the Alumar smelter in São Luís, Brazil and at Portland Aluminum, our joint venture smelter in Australia. In Brazil, we have successfully energized the first set of Alumar's smelting pots and we continue to add new pots to operations as the restart progresses. Our fully owned subsidiary in Brazil owns 60% of the smelter with the remaining percentage belonging to South32. Both partners have agreed to fully restart the site's 447,000 metric tons of capacity, which had been fully curtailed since 2015. We announced in September that we would restart Alcoa's share, which is 268,000 metric tons. We expect the restarts to be complete in the first quarter of 2023. Next, we continue to take decisive action when either operational or cost pressures require adjustments production. In December of last year, we reached an agreement for a two-year curtailment of the 228,000 metric tons of aluminum smelting capacity at San Ciprian, which faced exorbitant energy costs. We successfully completed that full curtailment this year and were actively working on arranging competitive power arrangements to support the agreed-upon restart in January of 2024. Also at our San Ciprián location, the Alumina refinery is currently challenged with extremely high natural gas prices. They are higher there, in fact, than anywhere else that we operate, climbing to more than $25 per gigajoule, a nearly five-fold increase since early 2021. As such, we have reduced the daily production rate by about 15% to help mitigate the impact of these higher prices and continue to actively monitor this situation. Separately, in the United States, on July 1st, we quickly acted to safely curtail one of the three operating smelting lines at our Warwick facility in Indiana. Unfortunately, we have struggled with staffing shortages at the smelter, which uses older, more manual technology. The decision to curtail one line allowed us to work on these operational challenges while focusing on stability for the two remaining lines. And at the bottom of this slide, we were happy to announce this quarter some return-seeking capital projects in both Norway and Canada. These two initiatives will allow us to creep capacity while adding value-add products for our customers. Next, I'd like to turn to our strategic priority to advance sustainably. Today, we have the aluminum industry's most comprehensive portfolio of low-carbon products in our sustain brand family. These offer customers the opportunity to lower their carbon footprint by simply using our products, which have lower carbon intensity than the industry average. Our sustainable family includes three products, beginning with EcoSource, which is our low-carbon smelter-grade alumina. It has a carbon footprint that is two times lower than the industry average. Next, our EcoLume aluminum counts scope 1 and 2 emissions from mined bauxite to cast metal and is 3.5 times better than the industry average. Finally, we also offer aluminum with at least 50% recycled content in our Ecuador brand. While still a relatively small portion of our overall sales, we do earn a premium on these products, and we've experienced year-over-year growth in annual sustaina sales as the move toward more sustainable solutions gains momentum. We continue to see strong demand for our aluminum-made-with-low-carbon-emitting processes, specifically in Europe. And focusing on our operating portfolio, we are also well-positioned for a world focused on lower carbon emissions. We have the industry's lowest carbon-intensity refining system. Our global smelting portfolio has 81% of its power sourced from renewable electricity, which makes us one of the world's lowest carbon-intensity producers of primary aluminum. Additionally, we have obtained certifications from the Aluminum Stewardship Initiative, the most comprehensive third-party system to audit responsible aluminum production. We can globally market and sell ASI-certified bauxite, alumina, and aluminum. Meanwhile, we communicated last year a net zero 2050 ambition, which builds on the progress we are already making against our existing goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase renewable energy in our smelting business. Meeting our net zero ambition relies heavily on technologies that we're currently working to develop. At Alcoa, we take pride in the fact that the legacy of our company is tied to the invention of the aluminum smelting process. The discovery by Charles Martin Hall in 1886 transformed society, turning aluminum from a rarely used material, it was the world's most expensive metal at the time, into something that we use daily. That spirit of challenging the status quo lives on with us today. That's why we have a strategic vision to reinvent the aluminum industry for a sustainable future. We are running forward to demonstrate what a low-carbon, sustainable aluminum industry can look like. We have a suite of technologies under development with the potential to transform our industry and drive value for Alcoa and our investors. Elicis is the result of years' worth of R&D work that started at Alcoa's Technical Center. Now, this joint venture with Rio Tinto remains focused on building out this process so it can be adapted for full-scale commercial use. Ellesis has produced the world's only commodity-grade aluminum manufactured without direct carbon emissions, and its metal has been used by brands ranging from Apple to Audi. Ellesis continues to be focused on its R&D development timeline with the technology available for installation from 2024 and then two years later for the production of metal from a first adopter. In addition to the environmental benefits, this innovation is being designed so it can save both operating costs and boost productivity when compared to a same-sized smelting cell. Our Refinery of the Future initiative is a combination of several different R&D projects and process improvements that aims to not only decarbonize the alumina refining process using renewable energy, but also to lower the cost of capital in constructing a new refinery, reduce freshwater use, and minimize and ultimately eliminate deposits of bauxite residue. As I noted earlier, the world is going to need more aluminum over the long term, and some of that is expected to come from recycled aluminum. We have a recycling process under development known as Estrella, that has been demonstrated at bench scale. It can use low-value, non-ferrous scrap, remove impurities and other metals, and purify the remaining aluminum to a standard that exceeds the quality level of most smelters. Finally, another project we have through Alcoa of Australia leverages our leading position in alumina refining. High-purity alumina, or HPA, is used in a range of applications, including LED lighting and lithium-ion batteries. We are in stage one of a multi-stage process that includes ongoing production trials and the detailed design of a demonstration facility. Each of these projects require intense effort, focus, and problem-solving skills from our teams, but our R&D projects offer vast potential as we continue to act in a cost-competitive and productive manner. I want to quickly recap a few important points. Our company delivered strong financial results in the second quarter, and we had an impressive first half. The work that we have done over these past several years has put Alcoa in a good position for all market cycles, and we continue to work on improving our company. Alcoa provided substantial capital returns in the second quarter with our stock repurchase program and our third consecutive dividend payment. And we are proud to have announced today another $500 million authorization for future stock repurchases. We also consistently evaluate our portfolio in accordance with our strategic priorities. We will restart capacity when it makes sense to do so, and inversely, we will act on curtailments, closures, or divestitures if it brings value for our company and its future. Finally, we know that the aluminum industry is vital today and tomorrow, including an evolving economy focused even more on sustainability. Alcoa is the company to deliver. Today, we have a low-carbon position with the industry's most comprehensive suite of low-carbon products in our line. For the future, we are investing in technologies that have the potential to transform our industry, and we are using industry-leading environmental and social standards to help chart the challenging and exciting course ahead. Importantly, we are led by strong values, and our purpose is to turn raw potential into real progress. These simple statements help to drive us forward with our strategic vision to reinvent the aluminum industry for a sustainable future.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's show. I just found it fascinating to see what Alcoa was saying about all of their operations around the world and ultimately that demand is growing that is the takeaway here. And despite what the central banks are doing, demand is growing, according to Alcoa's CEO. We have a fabulous show lined up next week with mining recruiter, Eric Buckland. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.